Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 52, Into the Breach, Part 5, Southern Success. Last time, we discussed the attack on Freikorps and Mehmet's, which was carried out by the British 15th Corps under the command of Sir Henry Horne. Compared to what we saw at Tiepvel or Oviers, the attack in this sector met with greater success. Units of the 7th Division's 91st Brigade liberated Mehmet's by 4 o'clock that afternoon, which resulted in the Germans evacuating Freikorps the following morning. In spite of their achievement, Horn's battalion suffered casualties in excess of 7,600 men, but in return were one of the few British units to claim the first day of the Somme as a success. The other sector to claim this laurel will be our primary focus for today. This episode marks the end of our discussion of the first day of the Somme, and in the face of all the death and carnage we've seen, it is nice to end off on a more positive note. There are two things I want to address today. The first half of the episode will cover the British attack on Montauban, while the second half will be dedicated to the French army's exploits in the south. In both instances, Allied attackers met with complete success, which, if nothing else, shows that the first day of the Somme was not the total catastrophe it is often remembered to be. There were some positives, and we'll be able to flesh out those positives in greater detail today. To kick things off, we'll complete our tour of the British front by continuing east. Three kilometers due east of Mametz was the village of Montauban. Montauban is one of the oldest settlements in the Somme region. Its modern roots date back to the 11th century, and the village has seen its share of history. The 100 Years' War of 1337 to 1453 saw the complete destruction of the original village by the British, and it was later rebuilt on its modern site, atop a small hill known as Montauban Ridge. 200 years later, Montauban's inhabitants received the shock of a lifetime, when the revered Sun King, Louis XIV, showed up for a surprise visit. This was especially odd, since the village had just 412 inhabitants and 60 houses, hardly a destination point for a royal tour. For centuries, Montauban enjoyed a flourishing cottage industry, producing woven cloth and other various textiles. It emerged as an important commercial hub, and its characteristic red-roofed cottages drew in merchants looking for a deal. Fast forward to the 1850s, and the cottage industry was wiped out by the Industrial Revolution sweeping across Europe. By 1914, Montauban's made produce was agricultural, facilitated by the vast fields and fertile soil which surrounded it. On July 1st, 1916, the British force opposite Montauban was 4th Army's 13th Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Walter Congreve. Congreve had two divisions under his command. The 18th Division, stationed just south of Carnois, and the 30th positioned east of Maricourt, facing Montauban. These two divisions were at the extreme southern end of 4th Army's front. In fact, 30th Division's right flank butted against Fayol's 6th Army. So not only did this mark the end of 4th Army's sector, but the end of the whole British Army on the Western Front. If you need to see this in more detail, there was another of my signature maps up on the website. In attacking Montauban, Congreve and his divisional commanders faced a difficult task. The terrain leading to the village was most unfavorable. For the most part, 13th Corps found themselves attacking uphill, 
with the Germans having dug themselves along the crest of Montabon Ridge. Aerial photographs revealed a complex system of trenches and fortifications. The Germans had constructed two principal lines. The first line was dug along the base of the ridge, just as the ground began to rise. Connecting this first line to the second was a maze of communication and support trenches, which continued on for over 800 meters. Then there was the second line, which consisted of long communication trenches running around the village to the north. Congreve's men had codenamed this second system Montabon Alley. As far as the British were concerned, Montabon Alley was the real prize. Taking the alley would give them a foothold in the area, because it served as an excellent observation post. However, the security of Montabon Alley depended on their ability to seize a line of redoubts which flanked the village. This string of fortifications, running west to east, consisted of the Palmares, Glatz, and Dublin redoubts. These three redoubts were the gateway to Montabon Alley. In pursuit of this goal, Concrete planned for a simple assault along a three-kilometer front. If you have the map ready, now would be a good time to open it so you can follow along. 18th Division, consisting, from left to right, of 54th, 53rd, and 55th Brigades, would move up the spurs to take the Palmares Redoubt and Montabon Road, which connected the village to Mametz. Meanwhile, on the right flank, 30th Division, with the 21st, 90th, and 89th Brigades, left to right, would secure the Glatz Redoubt and Casement Trench. Here, the 89th Brigade would be assisted by the French 20th Corps, which would secure the Dublin Redoubt on the extreme right. Once taken, reserve battalions would push up and take Montauban. Afterwards, the battalions would send out detachments to seize additional key points. These included Montauban Alley, but also a few more points of interest, including the Brickyard and Caterpillar Wood. The attack plan was very similar to Henry Horn's plan from last day, with a heavy emphasis on the flanks while avoiding a direct assault. But while Henry Horn had the firepower, Congreve did not. 13th Corps had only 10 field and 13 heavy batteries. Each battery consisted of about 7 guns, so in total, Congreve had only 161 heavy and light cannon. This would not be enough to carry out such a difficult task. To supplement this shortfall, Congreve had access to something the northern units could only dream of, the skill and experience of French gunnery. Put simply, one of the key reasons British efforts were more successful in the south was because the French were much better shots. Not only did they have the necessary equipment, they had been developing artillery tactics at a torrential pace since 1914. They were also armed with the lessons of Verdun. In fact, many of the soldiers in General Balfelier's 20th Corps, just right of the British 30th, were veterans of the Meuse Mill. Although it may seem cruel to us a century later, for some poor schmuck who survived Verdun to be sent to the Somme, it does show the serious manpower constraints France was facing midway through 1916. To boost the British arsenal, Balfelier had lent 13th Corps 32 heavy batteries, including 75mm howitzers and heavy mortars. With the addition of French equipment, Congreve now had 385 guns at his disposal many of which could fire high-explosive shells, which were needed to destroy the fortified dugouts. Combined, 
the Anglo-French armies east of Mametz had a 4-to-1 advantage in artillery. Not only was this hugely beneficial, it was further assisted by a crucial and unforeseen stroke of luck. The German unit stationed at Montauban, Infantry Regiment 109, was due for relief on the night of June 30th. But with the Allied guns pounding their positions, the change-up was only half-complete. Relief troops were now occupying half-destroyed shelters with little time to familiarize themselves, while the veterans were forced to fight alongside men they had never seen before. This may sound trivial, but it had important consequences. In the north, it was the efficiency and discipline of the German gunners which stalled the British attack. But at Montauban, this camaraderie was severely undermined. When it came time to leave the dugouts, half the defenders were confused and disoriented, while the experienced gunners would not have the support they could normally depend on. Although the British were not aware of this gift, it nevertheless gave them an advantage which fell in line with Congreve's plan of attack. When the battalion stepped into the breach that morning, the attack progressed without a hitch. Forward trenches were established, and a series of sap lines were dug towards the German line. These saps were little more than shallow ditches, but were crowned with heavy mortars, which could suppress key areas in the German defenses. Furthermore, the saps allowed infantry to advance further into no man's land. When the whistle blew at 7.30am, the British were given a head start on the Germans. In only a few instances were the Germans able to man their guns before being overwhelmed. Famously, the assault on Montauban began when Captain Wilfred Neville of the 8th East Series, part of 18th Division's 55th Brigade, kicked a pair of soccer balls out into no man's land. Popular myth would have us believe this happened all over the Somme front, and you've no doubt heard stories that the British continued to kick the ball until mown down in heaps by German machine guns. This claim is grossly exaggerated. Captain Neville did kick the balls into no man's land, and although Neville was killed in the advance, the East Surreys were able to make steady progress. Neville brought the balls to encourage his men, and it worked. It was not some decision of some out-of-touch superior. Elsewhere, attacking infantry were making significant headway. 54th Brigade, on the extreme left of the advance, progressed with little trouble. Here, the British used sensible tactics to overcome German strongholds. The 55th Brigades, 11th Royal Fusiliers, and 7th Bedfords had crossed the German threshold, catching many of the defenders still in their dugouts. In only a few instances was opposition stiff. Heavy counterfire from the Palmer's Redoubt slowed the advance, pinning the Fusiliers and Bedford south of the position. The Fusiliers on the left side of the Redoubt ran into further trouble as hundreds of men became snagged on barbed wire concealed in the long grass. In overcoming the redoubt, the Fusiliers and Bedfords made effective use of the terrain. Since the redoubt jutted outwards, they were able to flank it from opposite sides. Using their machine guns as a base of fire, the infantry advanced under the protection of their own bullets. This worked to suppress the Germans, who were only able to man their guns for short periods of time. The British MG teams took the brunt of German counterfire, allowing the riflemen and bombers to reach the redoubt and begin fighting their way in. After the most vicious of hand-to-hand -hand combat, the Palmer's Redoubt fell at 9.30am, and British detachments pushed beyond the main road, gaining 1,800 meters in the process. 
Where the attack encountered the most trouble was in the center. Here, the 53rd Brigade, comprised of the 6th Royal Berkshires and 8th Norfolks, were positioned across a pronounced salient dubbed Casino Point. To minimize the danger of bypassing the salient, Royal Engineers had planted 2,300 kilograms of explosives beneath the German positions. The purpose of this mine was, of course, to defang the enemy gunners and allow the infantry to advance along the exposed spurs. Unfortunately, there was a bit of a mix-up. The mine was to be detonated at 7.28 a.m. However, the Berkshires had gone in ahead of schedule. Why this happened is still a mystery. The engineer in charge of detonating the mine could only stare in horror as the infantry moved within distance of the charge. When they got within a 50-meter radius, the German machine guns on Casino Point crackled to life, cutting down the first waves and pinning the rest just short of the position. This sudden burst of violence resolved any lingering debate. With no other option, the engineer pressed the plunger and detonated Casino Point mine. There was a blinding flash, and the whole earth seemed to shake as the mine went up. It flattened the German redoubts, sending large lumps of earth, body parts, and bulks of wood swirling into the air. The mine did what it was supposed to do, but due to their close proximity to the explosion, the British were not spared its fury. One battalion CO was knocked unconscious from the blast, while 60 men were crushed by falling debris. It was a small price to pay, especially for the relative ease it gave the attackers. Casino Point Mine cleared the way for the infantry. Advancing past the salient, the Berkshires secured several trenches before being pinned down by sniper fire coming from a fortified intersection known as The Loop. One of the deadlier snipers had killed at least a dozen British with as many shots, including five at point-blank range. This troublesome marksman was eventually dealt with when a platoon sergeant major jumped the trench and shot him with a single round. In a final act of defiance, the sniper had echoed the British shot, which struck the sergeant major in the shoulder. Luckily, the bullet passed through the cartilage, leaving a clean exit wound. The sergeant major in question... F.A. Sayer would eventually recover, and received a well-earned Distinguished Conduct Medal. Meanwhile, the 8th Norfolks on the left of Casino Point continued to push. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the Norfolks' advance, but I do want to highlight one thing. To help the Norfolks cross no man's land, the British employed a new, terrifying weapon. The Livens Flame Projector. The Livens Flame Projector was essentially a giant flamethrower. 17 meters wide and weighing 2.5 tons, it fired a mixture of diesel and kerosene, which could send a bolt of flame over 40 meters. It was designed by engineering officer William Livens, who after alerting of his wife's demise on the Lusitania, swore revenge on the Germans. Three days after the sinking, Livens was relieved to discover that his wife had passed on a ticket aboard the Doom Liner, opting to take another ship, which was not scheduled to arrive until the following day. Despite his newfound appreciation for life, Livens remained committed to killing Germans, and by 1916 had constructed a prototype of his new weapon to be used on the first day of the Somme. The reason I bring this up is because it is easy to forget how terrible the fighting really was. At this point, it is all academic, 
and the words we use to describe battle can only convey so much. But in 2010, a team of battlefield archaeologists discovered a blueprint of the Livens projector, and reconstructed a working model of the original weapon. Although there were a few differences, the demonstration was as close to the original as you can possibly get. If you go to the website, thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, I've attached a link which shows the projector in full working order. It is a chilling and ghastly sight to behold, but it's a good reminder to ourselves that the fighting at Montauban was no less brutal. As 18th Division pushed on Montauban, 30th Division had joined the fray. To the west, the British had an easier time. Here, they benefited from the French guns which feasted on the German positions. The involved brigades, the 21st, 89th, and 90th, had spent weeks practicing the assault on scale models, and every man knew the locations of key positions and surrounding topography. On one occasion, the division carried out the operation entirely without officers, and it went off without a hitch. The main objective for this attack was the Glatz Redoubt. Assisted by the French, they had pummeled the stronghold with direct fire, using heavy mortars to supplement the artillery once the attack had gotten underway. The 21st Brigade, consisting of new army units from Manchester and Liverpool, were the first to reach the redoubt, and once inside, they were greeted with a horrific scene. A heavy howitzer shell, probably French, had penetrated the roof of the redoubt and exploded inside. When the British parties entered the dugouts, the stench of charred flesh was overwhelming. It was full of bodies, both dead and wounded. By 8.35am, the reserves had linked up at the redoubt and the position was safely in British hands. It had fallen one hour ahead of schedule. Leaving Mopper Uppers to consolidate the ruins, the Manchesters and Liverpools pressed further, using a smokescreen which reduced German visibility to two metres. By 10am, 21st Brigade was on the outskirts of Montauban, but were held up by friendly artillery which had renewed their bombardment of the village. In the meantime, the 89th Brigade on the extreme right of the British Army had linked up with French units from the 39th Division, part of Balfoyer's 20th Corps, and captured Dublin Redoubt. With Glatz and Dublin Redoubts in their possession, the path to Montauban was open. Here was where 90th Brigade came into action. 90th Brigade consisted of the 16th and 17th Manchesters, plus the 2nd Royal Scots. The battalions went into action one hour after the main assault. The occupants of Glatz Redoubt had fired a red flare which signaled them to attack. Their advance was very successful, so much so that the shelling on Montauban was still happening when they joined up with the units outside the village. As the shells continued to fall, five British battalions were in the queue, waiting the final push. When the shelling lifted, Montauban was totally destroyed. It was impossible to trace the runs of the streets, and the characteristic red roof tiles were little more than a smear of colour across a flayed landscape. Still, the Scots and Manchesters had to secure the village. When the guns lifted, both battalions began to work their way in. There was little resistance. In fact, the only real resistance was their fellow infantry, who for bragging rights, attempted to trip each other to prevent them from being the first to claim the prize. For decades afterwards, 
There remained a debate over who actually took Montauban, the two candidates being the Manchesters and Scots. Both battalions insisted it was them, which only made the situation all the more confusing. Things were so muddled that on July the 4th, Brigadier General C.J. Stevenson made conflicting congratulatory speeches, one to the Manchesters and another to the Scots the following day. However, recent evidence has shown that it was indeed the Scots who made the final capture, so we can finally give the Scots their due respect. Regardless of who claimed the laurel, Montauban was in British hands by 12.30 that afternoon, making it the only village taken on time throughout the whole of the Somme front. When the intermingled troops entered the village, it was found to be completely deserted, except for a lonely fox which darted back into the brush. Men from the 90th Brigade then embarked on an all-around defense, reversing fire steps and constructing observation posts. At the same time, detachments of the 16th Manchesters had moved on and secured Montauban Alley, which fell with little resistance. As the Manchesters secured Montauban Alley, the scene which greeted them was particularly unusual. From the battle-scarred village, they could see open country spread out before them, a vast green plain which stretched as far as the eye could see. Amazed, they could also make out the silhouettes of hundreds of retreating Germans, who were attempting to reach their second position along the Byzantine Ridge. The Manchesters were not going to let them leave peacefully. Machine guns and mortars were brought forward which began to fire into the fleeing enemy. Within seconds, the last of the silhouettes crumpled into the grass. The Germans, however, were not finished with Montauban yet. In an effort to retake it, they organized two counterattacks, the first of which began at 9.30 that evening. These were poorly planned affairs, which relied on exhausted infantry molded into mixed units. Both attacks were easily deflected by the British, having done little more than to affirm the completeness of their victory. By securing Montauban, Congreve's 13th Corps had accomplished a remarkable victory. Many units from Kitchener's new army had taken part in the fight, and having benefited from French experience and German logistical errors, prevailed in their first major test. To be sure, the success of these units was a valuable propaganda tool for future recruitment. Citizen soldiers had bested Prussian might, not only in the capture, but also in the defense of the village. Considering the Germans had spent two years occupying this sector, the latter point is all the more impressive. 13th Corps was the only unit to capture their first day objectives on time. However, they too had paid a heavy price. 18th Division reported 3,115 casualties, while 30th Divisions were slightly lower at 3,011. Furthermore, the German losses were equal at around 3,000. Montauban was a British victory, which, like Mametz, often gets the cold shoulder in the histories about the first day of the Somme. However, because of Montauban's proximity to the French, its capture had a major impact on how French operations to the south were conducted. So with the British having captured Montauban, we're going to shift our focus further south and end off today by examining the French efforts astride the river. But in order to introduce this new segment, I need to start with a bit of preamble. 
It is a bit of an historical oddity that although the Somme campaign was a French idea, there are so few sources on the French experience. After the war, each nation produced their own official histories, which detailed their individual experiences. For France, this official history came in a 103-volume report, in which just five pages were dedicated to July the 1st. The British, on the other hand, dedicated six chapters to the first day, with only a single page covering the French exploits. Obviously, this means there is a major gap in our knowledge of what unfolded that day, and we can only hope that someday someone will study the French experience in greater detail. If there are any PhD candidates out there, a study of the French army on the Somme would make a great dissertation. The lack of attention given to the French experience can be boiled down to one simple fact. For France, July the 1st was a day of great success, but it was brutally tainted by the British disasters. In recent years, English historians have made great efforts to shed light on this oft-forgotten chapter, but given the limits of primary documents, there is only so much they can do. Robert Doughty, Gary Sheffield, and William Philpott have contributed mightily in this regard. Still, there remains a strong English bias, and many historians continue to bypass the French in favor of recounting the same British mistakes over and over. In Simon Sebag Montefiore's 518-page study of the campaign, in which he dedicates 163 pages to the British side of July the 1st, the French experience is reduced to just three paragraphs, which are rolled in with his chapter on Montauban. Emile Fayol, the commander of the French 6th Army, is not mentioned once throughout the entire book. Even Martin Middlebrook's Timeless, The First Day on the Somme, originally published in 1971, widely considered by many enthusiasts to be the Bible of July the 1st, reduces the French to mere footnotes. Foch is mentioned only once, Fayol not at all, and Joffre twice in the first 35 pages. To be fair, the reason for this discourse was because it was Verdun, not the Somme which occupied the minds of French leaders in the summer of 1916. In France, the Somme is eternally second place to Verdun. You can see this by walking the battlefields today. Verdun is a nationally preserved park. Forts Douaumont and Vaux are safely open to visitors and you can spend several days walking the sites of Fleury, Mortholme, and Bois de Caire, each having been largely untouched since 1918. On the Somme, it is a different story. There are no major monuments commemorating the 6th Army, nor do the battlefields pack the same sort of oomph as the British. For example, the towns Curlew, Herbacore, and Fries don't ring the same bells as Beaumont Hamel or Tiepval. Still, we cannot forget that the Somme was an Anglo-French offensive, and that counts for July the 1st as well. So let's spend some time unpacking this story a little bit. The French 6th Army, commanded by Émile Fayol, was positioned astride the River Somme. The 6th Army consisted of three corps, the 20th on the northern bank, the 1st Colonial in the center, and the 55th in the south. There is a map of the French front up on the homepage. To prepare his group for battle, Fayol emphasized the need for careful monitoring of the bombardment, and to ensure the infantry did not overstretch their communication line. For Fayol, it was all about methodical preparation. In his final conferences before July the 1st, he stressed the importance of maintaining unity and cooperation, writing, quote, 
It is not a matter of rushing across enemy lines, but a battle organized and directed from objective to objective, always with an exact and consequently effective artillery preparation. Some officers have feared this method will break the spirit of the infantry. In reality, that which breaks the spirit of the infantry is the presence of intact networks where enemy machine guns intervene on the flanks. This is why the desired goal is to destroy the enemy's defenses before each attack. End quote. Few could have predicted at the time that Fayol was accurately describing that which would befall the British. But as we know, the French were attacking under much different circumstances. For example, despite loaning Congreve additional weapons, Balfoyer's 20th Corps still had 552 pieces of heavy artillery, 167 more guns than their English allies to the west. The advantage in firepower was further assisted by German complacency. The further south you went, the weaker their defenses. The terrain was much flatter, with none of these supporting spurs which dominated the other areas. However, the Germans made no serious attempt to reorganize their defenses to suit this new terrain. There were several fortified villages, such as Curlew, but the frontline systems were not reinforced to the same level as those near Albert. Thus, the French not only had the advantage in firepower, but were also facing an enemy ill-prepared for a major offensive. For the Germans, their most costly error was a lack of up-to-date intelligence. In short, 2nd Army headquarters did not expect a French attack. It was widely believed that the French had been so weakened by Verdun that they were incapable of taking serious action. You'll recall from episode 51b that Fritz von Bülow, the commander of 2nd Army, had been assured by Falkenhayn that any French activity would be little more than a show of force, possibly a distraction from the main British attack. Von Bülow's hands were tied, and he was forced to cannibalize his southern defenses to beef up the northern half. This left nothing more than a skeleton crew to oppose 50,000 French soldiers. When the attack began, the Germans were caught totally by surprise. High-explosive shells pounded their defenses, flattening trenches and dugouts. It was a terrifying show of force. One German officer claimed to have counted 200 explosions a minute, and in the final 48 hours before the attack, his men received no food or water. In the official history, the French experience was accurately described in one sentence. Complete success of the French on July the 1st, which basically sums up what happens next. We'll start on the north side of the Somme and work our way down from there. Attacking between Congreve's men in the river was General Baffoyer's 20th Corps, which comprised of the 11th, 39th, 72nd, and 53rd Divisions. Now we won't go into each division in detail, but the 39th Division does deserve special mention. The 39th was to the extreme right of the British 30th Division, and this was the unit tasked with securing the Dublin Redoubt. When the attack whistle blew, two battalion commanders, one English and one French, linked arms and marched across no man's land. The commanders in question, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Fairfax, and French Commandant La Petite made the symbolic gesture as an act of friendship and cooperation. Not only did Fairfax and La Petite stay together, they had led their men with speed and determination. The sight of their leaders in unison fired up their men, 
who swept towards the German trenches. Like terrifying specters from the mist, the Anglo-French troops surged into the enemy system, overcoming machine gun nests and capturing entire platoons. Within 20 minutes, the first German trench was in their possession, and Dublin Redoubt was consolidated before mid-morning. So complete was the operation that Fairfax and La Petite were congratulating themselves at 8.30 a.m., a bizarre sight given the carnage elsewhere. Across 6th Army's 17-kilometer front, the German defenses were crumbling. 20th Corps had completed their daily objectives by mid-morning, capturing 2,500 prisoners and gaining 1.5 kilometers. It was the same situation further south. At the center of 6th Army was the 1st Colonial Corps. As you have probably guessed, the Colonial Corps was made up of French colonials. This made the Colonial Corps a mixed bag of ethnicities. White settlers from the colonies served in the ranks, alongside black troops from Central and West Africa. Now, I should point out something. In most histories, black soldiers who served in the French army are collectively referred to as Senegalese, which is actually a misnomer. Senegal had been the first French colony south of the Sahara, and many of the first African recruits originated from there. But as the empire expanded into the west and central parts of Africa, new recruits were still identified as Senegalese, despite being from the Sudan or Ivory Coast as a few examples. So if you're reading about the French Empire and you keep hearing Senegalese being used to describe black military units, that does not mean they were exclusively from Senegal. The colonial corps was made up of members from more than eight African countries, not to mention thousands of soldiers from Vietnam and other French holdings in the Far East. I remember falling into this trap in the earliest episodes, so I wanted to correct myself and hopefully prevent someone from making the same mistake. Over 200,000 African soldiers would serve France in the First World War, taking part in some of the most vicious battles, not just on the Somme, but also Verdun and the Great Spring Offensive of 1917. It was on the Somme where the first colonials established themselves as a formidable fighting unit. Consisting of the 2nd, 3rd, 16th, and 99th Divisions, the colonials caught the Germans unaware. Their attack did not begin until 9.30 that morning, and as they jumped over the top, the chorus of La Marseille could be heard echoing across the plain. Assisted by the morning mist, the colonials made great headway. Despite a brief delay outside Friez, they were able to push on and by 12.30 that afternoon, had captured the villages of Dompierre and Becancourt. This put them in a position to threaten the second German line between Herbacourt and Azoviers. The advance had netted the colonials 2,000 prisoners, along with a significant number of German guns. Sixth Army was reporting one victory after another. German positions were falling with little resistance, allowing them to advance with minimal delays. The French had achieved the much-anticipated breakthrough, and the Germans could do little to stop them. However, since this was an Anglo-French offensive, Fayol did not want to risk overstretching the line. After securing Montauban, Congreve met with the French 39th Division commander, General Nourissant. The two men suspected that the German lines north of their position were in disarray, and both were eager to pursue the fleeing enemy. Nourissant was ready to go, 
but Congreve needed Rawlinson's permission. Well, actually, he needed the cavalry which Rawlinson was keeping in reserve. Rawlinson, you'll remember, did not envision a breakthrough playing out, and decided against a pursuit. Sticking to his guns, Rawlinson denied Congreve's request, ordering his corps commander to consolidate Montauban and await further instruction. Here is the source of major controversy. By denying Congreve, Rawlinson has been accused of sabotaging Haig's plan. You'll recall that Haig and Rawlinson disagree on how the battle should be executed, with Haig planning for a breakthrough and Rawlinson wanting a controlled, methodical advance. By noon, Rawlinson was well aware of events in the south, and had he wanted to, could have sent the cavalry without delay. By opting not to, the argument goes that Rawlinson missed a golden opportunity. It would take the Germans three days to reorganize, which was more than enough time for Rawlinson to shift his axis to the south and score a major victory. Instead, he didn't, and what we're left with is one of the most intense debates surrounding the campaign. There is a lot more to this debate, so we'll have more time to explore it in the next episode. But I promise you that once we do, you might never look at the first day of the Somme the same way again. Getting back to the battlefield, by 1 o'clock that afternoon, Fayol received word that the British attacks near Albert had failed. It was clear to Fayol that the British would not be able to hold on much longer, and so the 6th Army commander thought it best to quit while ahead. Fayol, you'll recall, was never fully on board with the Somme plan, and wisely decided to shut things down. This did not mean the French suddenly stopped where they were. In several places, the divisions captured additional objectives in order to consolidate their holdings. 11th Division took the fortified village of Curlew after an intense hurricane bombardment. The Bavarian Reserve Regiment, defending Curlew, had beaten off a series of French attacks throughout the morning. By 4 p.m., the garrison was demoralized and were ordered to evacuate. The French 37th Regiment entering the village was greeted with a horrific sight. The once attractive village presented a dismal scene of destruction. The village cemetery was particularly gory. The French guns had unearthed the graves, leaving bits of shroud, coffins, and long-dead corpses scattered about the field. On the south side of the river, the colonials capped off their impressive advance by attacking the Herbacore as a Vier's line. Here, the colonials found gaps all along the line, including one which was 200 meters wide between the villages. The French guns had successfully severed the German communications, leaving the defenders isolated and out of contact. At as of Yez, the Germans could count only three working machine guns. It was the colonial corps which stormed the fortress, and the fighting was particularly savage, most of it hand-to-hand. Personal battles were fought in the cellars, barns, and in the backyards of cottages. Even those wounded continued to battle as did prisoners who concealed weapons on their persons. In the back-and-forth fighting, it was the Germans who got the upper hand. Timely counterattacks swept around and into Azovies, wrestling it from the colonials with significant cost. Although the Germans succeeded in briefly recapturing the village, the damage had already been done. Herbacore had fallen, so holding Azovies made little sense. The surviving Germans bloodied and exhausted, were evacuated later that evening, and at 5 p.m., 
the colonials were able to walk into the village unopposed. In all, the French efforts on July the 1st were a complete success. Sixth Army achieved all of its objectives and took 4,000 German prisoners. Compared to the British, French casualties were incredibly light. 1,590 Frenchmen had been killed or wounded. As the heat of the day passed with the falling sun, the first day of the Somme entered its most difficult phase. Few had an accurate picture of what had unfolded, and the success of the attack was far from certain. But what we know now is that July the 1st was a day of contrasts. While some British units met with complete failure, others met with success, which at the very least, undermined some of the arguments that the Somme was an ill-planned and unrealistic venture. Up to this point, we've been following a straight retelling of the facts, so we should have a pretty good grasp on what unfolded that day. Next week, we begin the serious analysis, by examining some of the major myths and criticisms about the first day of the Somme. After all, July the 1st was just one day, and ending our discussion here would be doing the remaining five months a horrible disservice. So next episode, we'll examine things from a broader playing field. We'll look at what Haig and Rawlinson were doing throughout the day, and whether they knew what was transpiring on the battlefield. Critics of British generalship have often asked why Haig simply did not call off the battle at the end of the disastrous first day. Lurking behind this argument is the notion that Haig should have been so appalled at the loss of life that he should have been shocked into abandoning the campaign. This argument is a gross oversimplification, which does little to deepen our understanding of actual events. So in part 6, we'll bust down a few more barriers, and hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a newfound understanding of why this day unfolded as it did. Alright, that's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to get involved. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and of acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a five-star review iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been part 5 of episode 52 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.